to do that. I had to do that this morning because I have one little clip that I was going to show you. It was about five seconds long and I had to get you just a little bit more. That's from what movie? Ghostbusters. Uh, Ghostbusters, that's right. Graham told me anytime I can throw Ghostbusters into a sermon illustration, you're the bomb. Because he tried that in a youth group not long ago and everybody just kind of looked at him. And said, what movie? That gets it back to it. Tim Eden, that's my name. I'm one of the elders here at Fellowship Bible Church. I'm an assistant principal at the high school. Finishing up my 30th year of education, <laughs> I spent most of that time, I spent most of that time in a classroom, in a science classroom, as a matter of fact. And in that science classroom, I thought, um, well, and before I got there, I had to get my degree, and I got my Bachelor of Science degree in geology from Stephen F. Austin State University. I got my Master's of Science degree from Stephen F. Austin State University. I got that Master's of Science. It was a, science. It was a composite of geology and physics. And then I spent 20 years in the classroom teaching everything from life science to earth science to integrated physics and chemistry to AP physics. So all that to say, and that brings me to my favorite line from that movie where Dr. Vinkman looks up and says, Back off, man. I'm a scientist. <laughs> I'm not here to talk to you about science today. That's not why I'm here to talk to you. I don't want to talk to you and, and get all wrapped up in that. I'm here to talk to you about the Word of God and the Word of God that stands on its own. It stands alone apart from science and everything else. What is science? Science builds and organizes knowledge in the form of testable explanations uh, and predictions about the universe. It is empir empirical. It is testable. It's repeatable and quantifiable. It is something that is, um, depends on logic and hard evidence. That's what science is. I love science. We all love science. We do. Science has done a bunch of stuff for us, right? I mean, think about the advances science has made for us just in the, in, the, uh, in the realm of communication, even in the last 50 years. Captain James T. Kirk there on his communicator, or flip phone. You see where we're going with that? 1987 to 2010, the iPad. Okay, that's not real science, that's science fiction right? One of the biggest problems that science has, however, <clears throat> while it is real good for us and it has done a lot of things to help enhance our society now, one of the things that it has done is there are some scientists, not all of them, there is some science, not all of science, but there is some science out there that started with a premise that said, I got this figured out, I can figure this out. And basically the premise that they start from is, if not God, then how? If not God, then how? God didn't do this. We can figure this out. And so science tends, it, part of science embraces evolution. Part of science embraces a big bang 
that has our universe starting from a uh, from nothingness and through random chance and happenstance we end up with a universe that is ordered as it is now. There's a situation where science has to answer that question. If not God, then how? What I want to talk to you about today is the Word of God. But the Word of God stands out there, and it gets attacked. That's the world that we live in. And the Word of God gets attacked in such a way that we say, can I really trust the Bible? Does it really contain truth, or is it just a book that tells us a good love story and about world peace and how to love God, but if you want to get down to the absolute details of it, is it really, really credible? Like it's under attack all the time. Are you going to believe in science that really has kind of developed a personality of its own where science has said, this and scientists say that and all of a sudden we begin to hear this thing that says well science said that well science said it it's got to be true right or are you going to believe this book where we get attacked a little bit or the word of god gets attacked with are you going to are you just going to kind of take what that thing says with a blind faith you can't see it you're just going to kind of blindlessly walk into it i want to give you some understanding of just a couple of verses from our bible that hopefully will shed a little bit more light on not just the Bible, but the author of that Bible, the one who created this heaven and earth, and the way that he is able to help us understand a little bit more of our creation through science. Okay? Accurate information, that's what we're looking for. So we're going to take a look at science as it refers to our earth through a little bit of a time frame real quickly, okay? Understand that early, early on, we're talking about hundreds and even thousands of years before Christ. Man was trying to figure out what's this earth all about. And basically what they had was they had kind of a flattened earth on the bottom with mountains and valleys and the seas and the oceans and rivers and all the things that live on the earth here with kind of a globe over the top of it. They said, well, what is this earth all about? And they said, well, that earth is resting on the back of elephants. And when the elephants move a little bit, well, that's when the earth shakes a little bit. They're trying to answer some questions here, okay? What are those elephants standing on? The insightful mind asked, what are those elephants standing on? Well, those elephants were standing on an enormous turtle. Next question, what's the turtle standing on? Well, it was resting on the back of a huge serpent that swam around in a celestial sea. Basically, that was the best explanation they could come up with. That was the best they had at that time, okay? Well, let's look very quickly, just very quickly through timeline. Here we have a picture of Aristotle. Aristotle uh, as you can see there, the dates, 384 to 322 B.C., known as the grandfather of science, who was convinced that the earth was the center of the universe, with moons and planets, or the moon and the planets, there were 55 crystalline spheres that surrounded the earth. And on those crystalline hard spheres, you had these lights, the planets, right? And those spheres would kind of move at their own rate, and that would kind of help him explain why those lights move through the sky as the best he could do. Aristotle, 
the grandfather of science. Hipparchus. Hipparchus comes along a little bit later on. And Hipparchus, uh, 190 to 120 BC, he, and studying the stars, came up with his definitive star chart. About 850 stars, that's what he had in the night sky, 850 stars. We're going to move along to Ptolemy. Ptolemy pictured here, we moved into after, uh, after Christ has been here in the first century, 90 to 168. He improved on uh, Hipparchus' star chart because he got more scientific about it. He defined it more to where we had about 1,022 stars. He had identified, labeled, and knew where about 1,022 stars were. We move on then to Copernicus. Now we have jumped forward over 1,000 years as time rolls on, and there were more astronomers and scientists along the way, but Copernicus, now he's going to change things up. He's going to move from an Earth-centered universe to a Sun-centered universe. This was a bit of a problem. It was specifically a bit of a problem for Galileo as he followed up about 100 years later, father known as the father of modern observational astronomy. He spent a lot more time identifying the sun-centered universe. It got him in a lot of problem with the church because the church wanted to believe that the earth was the center of God's universe. And all those things can happen out there. Got him in a lot of trouble, but we move on to Kepler. Kepler is one who was uh, describing perhaps the orbits that Galileo had in circular orbits. Now he's got them in elliptical orbits. And then Newton, of course, Sir Isaac Newton. We all uh, think of gravity with him, and certainly he came up with the theory of universal gravitation. And so we have all of these guys that are input into our thoughts, and I've taken you through a quick timeline from B.C., about 350 B.C., all the way to 1727 here with Isaac Newton, just to bring you up to what they had so far. And I'm not even going to bring you up to the present yet. Well, let's take a look at Jeremiah. Book of Jeremiah written somewhere between 630 and 580 B.C. So remember, we are back before, even before our first recordings of anything uh, about our universe from the scientists. And let's look what we, we find here in Jeremiah. As the hosts of heaven cannot be numbered and the sands of the sea cannot be measured, so I will multiply the offspring of David my servant and the Levitical priests who ministered to me. Okay, it's a cool verse. Context of the verse, I told Graham, you're going to have to be careful with me on this one because I'm not even preaching from the true context of these verses. I'm taking side notes away from the context of the verse to be able to just show you a couple of ways where God's done some pretty cool things with this Bible that we have. Okay, so here we have a side note. They're trying to use as an illustration the fact that David, your offspring are going to be multiplied to an immeasurable number. Okay, that's the context of the verse. That's not what I'm preaching on. What I want to grab a hold of is that hosts of heaven cannot be numbered and the sands of the sea cannot be measured. Again, I'm going to tell you, this is time frame. Jeremiah, back here, 630 to 580 B.C., all the way up to Newton with the time frame that we have there. Okay? Jeremiah clearly did not write this, and let me make this very, very clear. Jeremiah's book... This verse, even the Bible, was never written to be a book of science. 
It was never meant to be a definitive book on science. But there's scientific stuff that's in the Bible. And what we want to grab onto is, is that credible? Because our, our learned men of today, some of them with all their scientific knowledge and technology that backs them up, want to say that, no, you can't believe the credibility of it. But take a look at this. Take a look at where we're going with this. What we have here is modern astronomy. Remember, it was ways back that we had 850 on a star chart, right? That's how many stars were in the sky. And Tommy came along and said, no, there's really 1,022. What our scientists today will tell us, today scientists tell us, with their much better ability to understand what's going on up there, in the Milky Way galaxy alone, right? In the Milky Way galaxy alone, we have approximately because it's been difficult for them to count them all, but there's approximately 400 billion stars in the Milky Way galaxy alone. But as they are able to see, what they know now to be true is as they see deeper and deeper out into space, stars appear in clusters, and those clusters are galaxies. Ours happens to be an average-sized galaxy with about 400 billion stars in it. Well, 170 million galaxies later, what they are estimating, their best guess at this time, their best estimate at this time, is that there are that many stars in the universe, plus or minus one or two. That's, the best, that's what science says today, their best estimate right there. That's the one with 24 zeros, okay? That's, that's what modern science tells us today, right? Well, just for the fun of it, modern science also, I looked it up on the internet. Thank you, science. Right? They did a comparison. They said, let's take the average size of a grain of sand, and let's figure out how many of those it would take to be this big, and then let's figure out the surface area of the beaches on the earth. And let's take a look at the depth of the average depth of the sand that you would find on these beaches of the earth. And believe it or not, believe it or not, their best estimate, the high end of the range of sand that, they, that they're estimating you would find on the earth almost matches the low end of how many stars, their estimation of how many stars there are. As the hosts of heaven cannot be numbered, the hosts of heaven stars, and the sands of the sea cannot be measured so I will multiply the offspring of, David, my offspring of David, my servant. The reason I bring that up is it's just a tidbit. It's just a nugget of something that Jeremiah was just trying to come up with an illustration of how numerous. It wasn't Jeremiah. It was the God who knew. So please understand and keep this in context as we go throughout this talk today. Keep this in context, that science of the day with Jeremiah, they weren't even recording it. But you remember, as time went on, oh, there's 850 of them up there. No, there's these. It's fixed solid and all that kind of stuff. Modern science today allows us to look back and see how literally true that verse is right now. Written by a guy who didn't even understand the, the literalness or the literality of what he was writing, the truth that was there. Let's take a look at Job. Oop, he went crazy. Let's take a look at Job for a second. Job is one of the oldest books in the Bible. Job is written in the time of the patriarchs. 
And, and really, I put 1900 B.C. because that would be about the oldest they estimate anywhere from there to about 1400 B.C. But remember our time frame. We are now 2,000 years before Christ, and we had already been up to 1727, uh, I believe it was, when we were looking at Newton. So we're 4,000 years about separated from what's going on here. The book of Job has an awesome verse in here that is something that we need to get a hold of. It, it was written, the book, uh, again, context, to, to take a look at a man, his spiritual journey, his deep testing of his faith, and really he comes to an understanding of who the almighty God of this universe is and really who he is by comparison. And we get inspired by the faith of Job, mentioned many times in the New Testament as well. Again, it's not a book of science, all right? Easily um, a thousand years before any of the ancient astronomers were even trying to document anything that they had. Job 26 Verse 7 says this. He spreads out the northern skies over empty space. He suspends the earth over nothing. Job is explaining to one of his friends how big this God that he worships is and how right this God is. He spreads out the northern skies over empty space and suspends the earth on nothing. Again, it's the side note here. He's talking about how big God is. But I want to take a look at his explanation of his God here that he has. Our best understanding of this really didn't come to fruition until some of our astronauts got into space, right? And they started looking back. And they can see exactly what is described here. Okay? And they send back and bring back pictures for us in video. Okay. Let me just help you a little bit here. Do you realize that we really, and I'm just going to break this down a little bit. He spreads out the northern skies. Do you realize that we really, really can't have a concept of north and south without an understanding of an earth that rotates on an axis. Here's where I'm going to get a little science on you, but please bear with me. Okay? It rotates on an axis. We all know that. Our earth spins, right? It spins on an axis. Well, you can't have a north and south unless you have a frame of reference. Albeit that word north, really first origins were that if you stand and look at the sun as it rises, north meant basically to the left. Okay? But you can't have a concept of north and south unless you have an earth that spins on an axis. Well, it just so happens that this earth that spins on an axis, which happens to be perpendicular for the most part to the sun, that's significant, and it's going to help us out here in a little bit, that earth spinning on that axis, it just so happens that you know, we have a magnetic north and south pole also, right? Our magnetic north and south pole, core of the earth, mainly iron, nickel, some heavy metals that are there, and it is the molten and not quite so molten interior of the earth that as it spins, it allows it to develop its magnetic field. That's why we have a magnetic field that surrounds the earth. Well, that's a cool thing, because if you're flying a plane, or if you were floating in a boat, or if you're walking around on land and you had something that was magnetic that was suspended, it would align itself pretty much 
with true north and true south. But what we have here with the North Poles, we have a true north where you can come and you can use your GPS and you can point to the exact northernmost part of the sky and the southernmost part of the sky. Well, this magnetic field that we were talking about, this is just an aside. You get a true north, right? I'm breaking down that verse, the northern uh, part of the sky. When we look at that magnetic field, that magnetic field that happens to come out around the earth, some of you may remember back when you took the bar magnet and you put the piece of paper over it and the iron filings and you tapped on it. How many of you remember doing that? Any of you did that in science and you saw those field lines? This is what it kind of looks like from space and there's the earth. And those field lines that you see happen to go out even farther than the moon's orbit around the sun. Well, that's a cool thing. You want to know what that magnetic field does for us? That magnetic field just so happens to be the Earth's best defense against the solar wind. What is the solar wind? The sun has flares. And within these flares, the solar wind is produced as the sun has a flare, and it sends out highly ionized gases. Very, very detrimental to the Earth very easily would incinerate everything that we have here. Okay, so you have a sun that sends out solar flares. We have a magnetic field here. Well, guess what that magnetic field does to those ionized particles? Basically what happens is as the sun sends out a flare, you can see the solar wind there. You see the purple lines? Those are illustrating our magnetic field. And what they do is they shield our Earth from this solar wind that would incinerate us if it were not there. And all of the solar wind, almost all of it, all of those ionized particles are deflected and they go right around us just because we have this magnetic field that happens to surround the Earth, happens to help us know where north-south is. A little bit, a little bitty piece of that solar wind happens to creep into our atmosphere. You know where it happens? It happens at the poles. A little bit of those ionized particles happen to creep in at the poles, and they produce for us what we would otherwise know as the aurora borealis or the northern lights. True picture here, not doctored. You can find tons of them. It's just a little bit of it. It seeps harmlessly in, but it gives us an awesome picture, right, of the majesty of God. One more side note, if I may. If you have a north-south orientation of an earth, right? Now you can have an east-west. Okay? Now you can have an east-west. East-west is pretty cool. Gives us another direction to go. Gives us a place to know where the sun comes up and sets, right? East-west is pretty cool as we move on over to Psalms. I'm just going to give you this one. I don't have it printed up here on the screen. But as we move on over to Psalm 103, verses 11 and 12... Another verse, not about astronomy, not about science, but let me unpack this one for you. Psalm 103, verses 11 and 12. For as high as the heavens are above the earth. Again, these aren't astronomers that are writing this. Psalm written back about 573 B.C. As high as the heavens are above the earth. Remember, this is well before the best they could do was come up with these crystalline domes that cover our atmosphere. Do you, get the, do you get the feeling of infinity here? For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. Verse 12, as far as the east is from the west, 
He has removed our transgressions from us. As far as the east is from the west, you can only get to infinity getting as far as you can as the east is from the west on a sphere. Because if you were to line yourself up and start walking east, you'll never get there because you will go perpetually. Or you could head west. And you can keep walking as far as you can and you will go to infinity because you can't get there from here. So east-west is pretty cool too for some guy that was writing this 573 B.C. And he says, as far as the east is from the west, do you get the feeling of the infinity? I get an overwhelming sense of that when I read that about how God was doing that. So remember here, Let me ask you this. As we go back to this verse where we've talked about the north, as far as the north, uh, spreading the north out in the northern sky. Do you think Job had any clue about this science stuff? Or the writer did? 2,000 years B.C. Do you think he had any clue about it? I don't. I don't think he had a clue. I think he was inspired by the God who created it. I think he was inspired by the God who knew and could see what some of our astronauts have been able to see today. He didn't know then. But as soon as we read that verse, you kind of had this picture come up in your mind of the north and south and east and west and the northern sky. Okay, I get that. Because we live in that world today. They didn't then. It was written back then. And it is absolutely 100% credible today. They say the devil is in the details. I think in this case, the God of creation is in the details. He spreads out the northern skies. Oh, by the way, one more thing. Let's, let's continue that verse. That empty space thing, I'll talk about that for just a second. We've got a north-south oriented earth, right? Rotating on an axis. Pretty much perpendicular to a sun over here that throws out solar wind that could kill us if we didn't have this magnetic field around us, right? And here we go on this earth rotating on an axis at 67,000 miles per hour in an orbit around our sun. 67,000 miles per hour. The only way, and it's been doing that for a long, long time. Our earth has been doing that for a long, long, long time. Spinning on an axis. Anybody here spin a basketball on your finger? Diddy can Diddy, without touching it again, how long will that basketball spin on your finger if you were to spin it right now on your finger? Not long. 30 seconds maybe? Maybe not that long? Why would it stop? Why would it stop? Okay, it's got gravity. Gravity holds it on that finger. That's true, but it would stop probably because of friction. I'm thinking it would stop because gravity would help, and we've got a lot of that right here at the Earth's surface. But friction, the friction on the finger, the air resistance in the ball, that ball would have an unstable spinning, and it would fall. But here we've got an Earth, north-south oriented, spinning on an axis, rotating 67,000 miles per hour around the Earth. The only way you can maintain the stability of a spinning object on an axis moving at 67,000 miles around the sun per hour around the sun in an orbit that keeps our earth organized is to put that spinning sphere 
suspended on nothing, so there's no friction, in empty space. Did you hear that in that verse? In a void, empty space. And what do we know about space? It is a vacuum. It is a friction-free environment where it spins and it moves in a friction-free environment, nothing to slow it down. A few little dings and dots with a couple of little meteors that come along the way, but those are like dust particles along the way. They wouldn't really slow that basketball down for you. The only way that it can sustain its rotation and its orbit is if it's in a friction-free environment. That's what we have. He spreads out the northern skies over empty space and suspends the earth on nothing. How cool is that? Job, thanks. He didn't have a clue what he was writing about, other than that this is an awesome God. They didn't have a clue then. And people have not really had that great of a clue till our science today has been able to indicate that for us. And here we go. By the way, just so happens it's pretty neat that our earth decided to spin on an axis that is perpendicular to the sun instead of being oriented so that it's spinning in this direction because if it did, those solar winds, some of them that sneak in through the northern lights, that come in as northern lights, would incinerate the earth. It's a pretty good little, pretty good little deal that happened for us there. That's a good gig. I like that. It works well for us. I'm going to move on. Here we have in Hebrews... Chapter 11, verses 1 and 2. Now, faith is being sure of what we have hoped for and certain of what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. By faith, we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. Perhaps it stretches it a little bit to say this, but it's true. That guy didn't have any idea what an atom was. And that atoms were made of little bitty smaller particles that can't be seen. But that which is made, made out of that which was not visible. I think the impetus of this verse, however, was to say that God spoke and the worlds were created. Matter coming from nothing. That's a problem for scientists because there's this little thing called the law of conservation of matter that says matter can't be created or destroyed in a closed system, which is what we have. Matter cannot be created or destroyed, but it simply changes from one form to another. What you have is what you have. You can, you can mash a rock and change it into dust and all that, but the same amount of matter is there. What you have is what you have. This kind of flies in contradiction to that. Science has a problem with that. Some science and some scientists do. But the Bible says that God spoke and it happened. It doesn't make scientific sense. Maybe science just doesn't have enough sense yet. You see, the astronomers of today have tools and access to looking back to all kinds of things. And we can see now, looking back in retrospect, at some of those verses that they didn't have a clue what they were writing about. In fact, the science of their day didn't have any help for them then. But we can look back and see how true those statements were, even if they were side notes 
to God tell them about something else. I'm sure scientists today look back at some of the scientific things. Astronomers today look back at Galileo and Copernicus and Kepler and some of those guys and say, man, you guys were doing the best you had with what you had, but boy, you really missed it because there's a whole lot more to it than what we had. You see what I'm saying? They look back and would say that. Just like perhaps doctors would look back today and say, man, the standard practices that they had back then, ay, ay, ay. George Washington. George Washington has been our president. He's an awesome guy. He's one of my, my presidential heroes. George Washington, age 67. He's been president. He's gone back to Mount Vernon. He's done. He's going to take care of his farm. He's going to help out there. He gets sick. He gets sick. It's, it's basically like a sore throat. It's acute bacterial epiglottitis, I guess is what you'd call it. But basically, let me tell you what it is. The little flap that covers over your lungs when you swallow, that's it. It got infected, started to swell, and made him not breathe so well. So they called the doctor. On the way, they did what the standard medical practice of the day was, which was to bleed him, let some blood out. The doctor got there, and he said, He's not getting better. We've got to bleed him again and again throughout the night. Within about 12 hours, he had over a half gallon of blood bled from his system. And George Washington weakens and soon thereafter dies. Antibiotics. Bacterial infection. That's antibiotics. That's a couple of days, and you're breathing better, and you get up and go. Science doctors would tell us today. I wonder... I just wonder, for the science of today, I just wonder if 200 years from now, scientists might look back at what we think is exactly accurate, or the scientists of today think is exactly accurate. I wonder if modern medicine of 200 years from now would look back on today and say, you're bleeding them? I wonder. Stephen Hawking. Stephen Hawking is a world-renowned physicist, astronomer, lecturer, who's had enormous contributions to the scientific world as they try to figure out the Big Bang and the beginnings of the universe and all that kind of stuff. He has a huge following. In fact, there are many who would call him the smartest man in the world. Brilliant guy. A lot of stuff up there, and he thinks. He got a disease that one point that he was only supposed to live maybe two more years. He's lived 40-some-odd years since then, still alive today. Stephen Hawking, uh-oh, did I do that? I'll get there. Stephen Hawking said this, I regard the brain as a computer which will stop working when its components fail. There is no heaven or afterlife for broken down computers. That is a fairy story for people who are afraid of the dark. Our universe didn't need any divine help to burst into being. He's a brilliant guy. Smartest man alive by many in his field. Interestingly enough, however, Stephen Hawking, even Stephen Hawking in a recent lecture, made this statement. All the evidence, 
Because, see, he has a problem. There's some problems with this Big Bang thing. It just doesn't match up. And so what Stephen Hawking said was, all the evidence seems to indicate that the universe really has not existed forever, but that it had a beginning. Thank you, Stephen Hawking. Welcome to agreeing with Genesis 1-1, the first three words of the Bible. In the beginning. So now we're in agreement here just a little bit. All the evidence points to the fact that, yeah, there was a beginning. He, he describes the Big Bang as what he called a singularity, and I promise you, you don't want me to explain that because I don't even, I'm, I'm doing good to pronounce the word. I don't understand everything that he puts into all this and all the, the physics and astronomical gymnastics that he would have to do to get to this point, but basically a singularity was all of everything that we have in the universe was crammed into one little bitty tight package. But what he said about that singularity, and this is before the Big Bang, what he said about that singularity and about the Big Bang was that it doesn't exactly follow the laws of physics. In fact, at a singularity, the laws of physics don't really apply. That's kind of like having a law and then changing the law. Never heard of that happening. But he, the smartest man in the world, decided, okay, we're going to take this singularity and we're going to say that the laws of physics don't really apply there. And so the laws of physics break down there. Additionally, he stated that the amount of matter that existed before that singularity, we really have some matter now. Remember that law of conservation of matter? Matter is neither created nor destroyed. Oh, well, now we get to create some matter. Thank you. You're agreeing with Genesis even more. Interestingly enough, Stephen Hawking's later in that same deal because there's one little more science thing i got to say, which is the second law of thermodynamics. It's otherwise known as entropy, which says that things tend to work to a state of disorder. And he knows that that after the singularity, after the Big Bang, everything from that point on had to follow the laws of physics, conservation of matter, and this second law of thermodynamics, which says that it's got to work to a state of disorder, which means that, and he said it in this thing, eventually this universe will no longer exist. Hallelujah, he's made it to Revelation. (laughs) My answer. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent, I will frustrate. Where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was well pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. 1 Corinthians 1, 18-21. God has a pretty good way of dotting the I and crossing the T. The best our science can do today is the best it can do today. But as we can see with our science today, looking back in retrospect to that which was written long ago, exactly accurate, very trustable, very reliable, Because this 
Bible that we have that God designed, that God inspired to be written, it stands alone. It doesn't need me to explain it. It doesn't need you, and it certainly doesn't need science. In fact, God created science. I'm glad he did. It helps us out a lot. I think it helps us understand him more. I think he knew in a day and age where technology would help us gain information or have access to information a lot easier than they had back in the days of antiquity. Now that we have our information, now we can go back and look at some of those old things that were written way back when those people didn't even understand it and say, oh my gosh, it's exactly accurate. I'll end with this. Psalm 19, 1 through 4. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they display knowledge. There is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. Their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. Father, thank you for your kindness and grace and mercy in our lives. Thank you for your faithfulness.